The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Ferrand. I'm honored today to act as guest host for my friend, colleague, and regular host of this podcast, Dr. John Santapietro. I'm a board-certified clinical health psychologist with 16 years of experience in Hartford HealthCare. And much like Dr. Santapietro, I've spent the past year working directly with patients experiencing and coping with the ramifications of the pandemic, and also acting in a leadership role addressing the wellness of healthcare workers to ensure their safety, adjustment, and professional fulfillment during these uncertain times. I'm honored to join the team at the Quell Foundation as they continue to lift up the voices of our healthcare professionals who are still living with the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. Let's get started. So welcome everybody to today's Lift the Mask podcast. I'm really pleased to be hosting this conversation. I feel very lucky to have Dr. Garza with us today. Dr. Garza is a pediatrician who lives and works in Texas. And I wanna start by saying how grateful we are at the Quell Foundation for healthcare providers like yourself who have the courage to share their stories. And really just thank you so much for helping us learn what we can do to better care for our caretakers during crisis. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and I love what you guys are doing. I think this podcast is great. So I'm happy to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you. So Dr. Garza, can you start by telling us where you were and what you were doing professionally when the pandemic hit? Yes. So I live and work in Texas. I have been an outpatient general pediatrician here for about seven years since I finished up my training. And so I work at the outpatient clinic, which is affiliated with a larger health system. And when the pandemic started, that's exactly what I was doing. And so the actual surge of cases came here quite a bit later than it did in New York. And so the first few months actually weren't much different. Of course, we made a lot of changes, but having that lead time, seeing what was happening in other parts of the country before it really hit us really allowed us to prepare really well and at least supply ourselves with PPE that we needed and make the necessary adjustments. So how are you feeling during that time? I I imagine it must've been sort of nerve wracking. Were you worried that you might get redeployed or have to go work elsewhere? We were really worried. It was like anyone else, there were so many unknowns. And so from the beginning, everyone was saying it wasn't hitting kids as hard, but we didn't know that. And so we weren't sure what our patients were going to look like. We weren't sure how busy the hospital was going to be. Obviously, our own personal safety was a concern. And so our children's hospital took on adult patients once it was sort of established that kids really were not getting sick with it, or at least not as severely. 
are not needing hospitalization as much as the adults were, but the adult hospitals by summertime started filling up when we did hit our peak. And so the children's hospitals took on adult patients. So some of my colleagues who work inpatient took care of some adults. And so we did wonder if outpatient pediatricians were going to get called in or if we were going to get reassigned and have to work in ICUs. It was really a scary thought. We would have felt very underprepared <laughs> to do that. And so, yes, it was many, many sleepless nights of just sort of watching these models, watching the numbers, watching how many beds were available and trying to prepare for something that we didn't even really understand what it was going to be. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I just can't, can't imagine what that must've been like. So I have to imagine you, you guys were changing a lot of your processes and the way you were doing outpatient care. So what was that like? Exactly. So we never closed our doors. That wasn't going to be an option for us. You know, we're primary care providers. And even though children were not getting sick with COVID, they were still getting sick with other things and they still needed checkups. Part of routine pediatric care is pretty frequent checkups and vaccines and routine health maintenance. Then we knew we were never going to have the option or we wouldn't have ever imagined, I think, closing our doors. But we were trying to balance the needs of our patients, the safety of our staff and what the needs were for the community at the time. And so in the beginning, as soon as the schools closed and kids weren't getting sick with their usual illnesses, our demand for sick visits plummeted. And partially because of that, but also partially to allow our staff safe distancing practices, we basically reduced everyone's hours, physicians included. Everyone went down to three days a week. We started working Monday through Saturdays three days on, three days off. And that way we had the full use of the clinic. We could all safely spread out and we just couldn't really justify everybody being there otherwise without a high demand for sick patients. So for physicians, that was not as big of a deal or salaried for staff that meant, you know, reduced pay, reduced hours. So that was a challenge for them for sure. And then we kind of focused after we figured out the safe way for our staff to come to work we focus on how is the safest way to see our patients and continue doing what we're trying to do. And so in the beginning, we saw only well checkups in the morning, and we tried to do all of our sick visits via telehealth. That didn't last very long <laughs> for several reasons. The first one is that if you have when you're a baby and you come for a checkup every couple months, you're just not always well every time you come. And so it was a lot of if you came in and the baby was sick or the mom was sick or the dad was sick, it was a little bit of, oh, we'd like to reschedule you. And so we got a little bit of pushback from patients on that. And so that was the first problem is that the checkups were not always well. And if they were, their parents were not always well. So then we made some adjustments there. We started requiring that families only bring one caregiver per patient. Because at first, not knowing what the asymptomatic carriage rates were going to be, not knowing even what the community rates were at the time, it was a scary thought. If I see 20 patients a day and they bring two parents each, that's a lot of people I'm exposed to over the course of the day in this confined space. And so we tried to limit how many people came in for those checkups. We tried to make the checkups healthy, or at least reschedule them to when they were healthy. And we tried to do our sick visits via telehealth. But the problem with that is that for some things, it worked really well. For rashes, it was great. For some of the behavioral health things that we as pediatricians do, like ADHD, it was great. Mm -hmm. 
But there was a lot of stuff in between that it just didn't work as well for if you consider how many of our patients are nonverbal. And so even in the exam room, it's hard to get a good ear and mouth exam on little babies and toddlers. And so via video, it was really kind of limiting too. And so we did the best we could. If it seemed like they were high risk for COVID, we tried to do a televisit first send them to our testing site, which by the time the surge hit us, this was all set up. That was like the one of the many benefits we had kind of with it hitting us later is we had a testing site set up. I mean, it wasn't like other places where you couldn't even test in the beginning. And so we tried to do a lot of telehealth first then send them to a testing site. If they tested negative and we wanted to bring them in, then we'd bring them in. And that took a little time, too, to get providers fit tested for N95s then to get the staff fit tested for N95s. But I would say by some point in summer, I think all of the clinical staff was fit tested. And so we did have the capability to bring sick visits in. And that was around the time that it was hitting us. Our first surge with COVID was over the summer. And so, like I said before, kids have not been as severely sick with COVID, but they sure as heck still get it. And so we did start seeing some more sick visits through the summer, some more in-person visits. Eventually, we started doing our own COVID swabs. And so really always trying to balance, again, the needs of our patients. We found that the compliance with testing was so much better if we tested them in our clinic, but then balancing the safety and the comfort level of our staff. You know, what I'm struck by and what you're saying is how active you must have been as a physician in this work that's kind of out of your scope, right? Like, it sounds like there's just shifting processes so often. And I'm curious about like how much you and your colleagues had a role in the creation of those processes and how did, how did that all work? So I mentioned that I work for a larger organization and that definitely had some advantages. Like I said, we never lacked in PPE. We always had a lot of good guidance, but like any big organization, a lot of the protocols and the advice came down from the top from people very far removed from our clinic. And so in the beginning, every day felt different. Every day felt like we didn't know what we were doing or what the process was. And part of it was processes and protocols, but then part of it was the medicine too. I mean, this was all new to all of us. Like, oh wait, can that rash be COVID? I don't know, let me go look. Or where do I check? Who do I ask? Or, oh, could that be COVID? And so it was really hard. It's sort of, you know, when you're a new physician, which was not that long ago for me, you sort of struggle with confidence and trying to feel confident and know what you're talking about. And I feel like I had just in the last few years really hit like my stride. I know what I'm talking about at my checkups. I know what I'm seeing with sick visits. Of course, I know where to look things up if I need to, but I just, the confidence I had finally gained, it was just gone. <laughs> it was just gone. I felt like we were all guessing, walking in the dark, trying to understand. And then we met a lot of resistance from parents too. For example, if someone came in with symptoms that looked like allergies and we said, you know, I can't tell you that this is not COVID unless we test your child that frustrated some parents that we couldn't tell COVID from allergies. And so that was a little bit hard, the unknowns with the medicine, and then also just the ever-changing processes. And so a lot of times something would come down from higher up on how they wanted to do things or a new proposal for how to see sick visits and when to see sick visits. But we sort of as a clinic, you know, as a group and not even just as physicians, just our whole clinic together would have to look at it and say, mm, does that work for us? Because by the time the process came out, we had been dealing with this particular issue, like a runny nose during a well check mm -hmm. for weeks now, as soon as we opened our doors. 
you know, it was running notices during well checks. And so a lot of times we had already figured out the solution. And so then it was a matter of, could we make our solution jive with their solution and kind of trying to toe that balance that you often do when, a, when you're a bigger organization, but not every clinic looks the same. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. And there's so many things that you just said that I want to follow up on. But let me start first by asking you, about your organization's response, right? I think this is true in my organization as well, that like it's, I think, a struggle for the healthcare organization to really understand the experiences of healthcare providers, particularly then when they're working in ambulatory settings with a big geographic footprint. Like, so you're probably not even physically close to your leadership. And so I wonder, like, what did your organization do to help you feel protected and safe? How did they take care of you as healthcare providers? Well, there were certain things they did really well. I mean, they started emailing us about the coronavirus since like January. And, and it was very similar to when there was an Ebola outbreak a few years ago, which never really came to the U.S., thank goodness. It was similar to that. And so it felt like they were really on top of it from the beginning, almost to the point where we were like, why are they talking about this? You know, from so early on, obviously they needed to. So for the most part, I think being part of a big organization was really helpful and was really valuable because it gave us the bargaining power for the PPE that we needed. And it had a lot of really smart people helping answer these questions. And so I definitely value that. And I didn't ever wish I was in a private practice during this because I think it would be so much harder. And I heard a lot of horror stories of private practices who couldn't get PPE, couldn't get testing, really had to close their doors because they couldn't pay bills because our demand just plummeted in the beginning. So for the most part, they respond very well, but there were, of course, some limitations. And so, like I said, it always felt like when they came up with a new protocol, it was like days late or so. For example, in the, from all summer long, we were dreading the fall because for pediatricians, the fall is very busy. That's when we get RSV, that's when we get flu, and flu tends to hit kids harder than adults in some ways. And so we were just freaking out all summer long. We were just stomachs and nuts like, okay, COVID is kind of manageable. The kids are okay, but what are we going to do in the fall? We knew the schools were probably going to open down here. And so we were totally panicked and we spent so much time amongst ourselves trying to decide how we would manage the flow, manage the demand for sick visits, manage the demand for in-person visits. Mm -hmm. And we really, I think, worked out a good system. And it was like, weeks later, maybe even more than a month, it was probably weeks later that from the top, this kind of protocol came out for in-demand sick visits. And so I'm glad they were thinking about it, but because, you know, there's so many levels and hierarchies and committees of people, it just sometimes felt like it came a little bit late. And then the other thing that I think a bigger complaint that I heard, especially among the staff, is a lot of times it felt like the patient satisfaction was trumping our concerns for safety. And it's not that we ever felt unsafe, but as the schools opened, as our demand for in-person sick visits grew, at the same time, the organization lost a ton of money last year because we weren't as busy as usual. And of course, we're a business and we have to keep our lights on and keep our doors open. So the response from the organization more recently has been, you know, you need to bring in sick visits. You need to let anyone come in who needs to come in. You need to get back to numbers from before. Like we need to kind of recoup the money we've lost. And that's been a little bit challenging because we're still trying to do that safely. And it's really hard 
to have nobody in the waiting room or have your visits adequately spaced out so you can clean the room really well in between. It's really hard to do that and try to meet sort of scheduling demands that we used to abide by in years past. So that has really been challenging. Wow. Yeah. You know, you're talking about feeling protected by your your organization. And it reminded me of an article I read early in the pandemic that really helped here in my system. It helped us frame our thinking around the sources of anxiety for healthcare professionals, and then also the ways that an organization can help. And so it was this article in JAMA by Shanna Felt and colleagues, and they talked about the importance of healthcare workers feeling heard and protected and prepared and supported and cared for, right? So that like there should be this really holistic support of both the individual and their family, like should they need to be quarantined, that we're listening to and acting on healthcare professionals, expert perspectives and their frontline experiences in the development of policies and procedures that we're asking to hear their concerns and that then we're then sort of acting on them in a way that prioritizes the safety of the workforce as well as our patients. Yeah, I think the sort of tug of war between staff satisfaction around feeling safe and patient satisfaction, I think was a major challenge for the organization and various times throughout the pandemic. They kept changing the, what they called a visitor policy, which is not really a visitor because obviously the kids have to come with someone. No one's dropping off their two-year-old, thank God. (laughs) So there was a lot of back and forth with that. In the beginning, we were very strict. It was one caregiver only. It felt like people could follow that rule and it was reasonable. But then sort of a lot of things happened. You know, our state here opened up sooner than other states. And so the messaging, the politics behind it really was not as, consistent or as conservative as I would have liked it to be. And so we started to get complaints that people wanted both parents to come or people, you know, didn't understand why only one caregiver could come for every visit. And so at various points throughout the pandemic, it went back to two caregivers and then it went back to we couldn't turn anyone away, even if they were sick, even if they weren't wearing the mask the way we asked them to. We had kind of all these rules in place. But it's hard being in healthcare, and in some ways, we really can turn them away. We're not an ER, but of course, that's not what we want to do. And so that became a little bit hard. There were various times where it felt like one patient made a complaint that you know the runny nose kid couldn't have his eight-year-old checkup, whereas from our point of view, he didn't need any vaccines. The checkup could have waited two weeks for when he didn't have a runny nose. But it felt like they didn't hear that. They didn't hear that the runny nose kid comes in with the parent with the runny nose that hasn't been tested and doesn't plan to be tested for COVID and doesn't wear their mask the right way in our office. And they weren't in our office seeing that. They were just hearing the complaint. They wouldn't see my kid because they had a runny nose. So that was a little bit hard. It felt like a constant tug of war. And I do feel like for the most part, we were protected and our opinions were valued. But sometimes we had to speak up a little bit louder because it felt like the patient complaints weighed a little bit more heavily. Yeah, well, and I'm interested in your patient population. What can you tell us about your patient population, the folks that you're working with and their needs? There's a couple things that I think are worth noting. And so the one that I just sort of alluded to is the messaging from our community leaders down here, I think was not very consistent in the beginning. And I think that we, in a lot of ways, 
opened up, as they say, the economies, the schools, a lot of places sooner than medical professionals felt like was safe. So that was really hard. That had to change how we approached our patients because a lot of times that's where they get their information from is their political leaders, the governor, you know, I won't name names, so I guess I don't have to. But that was really hard is that by summertime already places were open, kids were going to summer camps. The first COVID test I think I ever did was in the spring of last year. And this kid, a small child, like he wasn't even in junior high yet, had flown in an airplane for a sports tournament and came back and had been exposed to somebody with COVID. And I think my jaw was on the floor. I was like, you're flying for sports tournaments for a nine-year-old during a pandemic? And I just could not figure that out. So that was really hard. Uh, it felt like all of Texas was open and business as usual. And then patients didn't understand when we were like, you know, this could be COVID or please don't go to a party when your child is sick and so on and so forth. And so in a lot of ways, we've always, I think, done a lot of public health. It's part of being a pediatrician. It's part of educating our parents and, you know, keeping kids safe. And so we kind of had to transition that role. I spent a lot less time talking about childproofing your house and a lot more time talking about what is the safe gathering right now. In the beginning, people would ask me, is this COVID thing real? And so sort of trying to, you know, get my job off the floor. Yes, it is very real. Yes, kids aren't getting as sick as adults, but some of them are dying. And with kids, you know, one death is so much more, in some ways, difficult to bear. Even if it's so much less common, they were, some of them are dying. Some of them are getting the rare complications. And so trying to educate parents that it is a real threat. We need to be playing safe. We need to be taking precautions. And what those actually look like, that was part of it. But my patient population in general is lower income, Hispanic, kind of a mix of ethnicities, but for sure lower income, younger families. And so I found that the messaging couldn't really be the same for everyone. So early on, I had a baby who was only three months old and she was positive for COVID. And when I saw that, my own kind of bias or my own kind of gut reaction was sort of, wow, where did you take your baby that she got COVID? You know, in my head, I didn't say that. But it turns out they were living with extended family. There were six adults in the home. They were all still working outside the home. I mean, these are working class families that didn't have the luxury of working from home like many professionals did. They never, in some, a lot of them lost jobs, but those who didn't kept working, kept working in their restaurant jobs or cleaning houses, you know, some high risk exposures. And so I found that the messaging couldn't really be the same for everyone. You know, do the best you can to isolate, do the best you can to keep your bubble small, but it wasn't quite the same. And I think that plays into a lot of the reasons why the Hispanic population has been affected so much more. That's so interesting. And I was thinking about the role of the pediatrician as public health educator and how much that work must have changed for you and your colleagues during that time because of probably regional differences and your political climate to some degree. And even if it wasn't that, it's just that it was so new and different. And it was just Mm -hmm. getting used to talking about something different, trying to coach and support families through a pandemic and how to live in a pandemic and how to make your child safe. And that's ongoing, you know, that hasn't really changed. And now it's a lot of, you know, it's still out there. We still have to be careful. Let's talk about the vaccine because a lot of vaccine hesitancy. And so, yeah, I think that's been our biggest role. You know, I, I was in my line of work, I wasn't taking care of a critically ill COVID patients. It was a lot more of this sort of community 
effort, public education, you know, how can we try to keep kids safe? How can I help you understand this? Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of, I think, I don't want to say stigma, but I think in a lot of ways people were afraid to admit or didn't want to admit they had COVID. And so there was a lot of, they wouldn't tell us or wouldn't tell us their symptoms completely. Because I think on a very practical level, there was just this idea that we weren't going to see them or take care of them. So we really tried to make our messaging, we're going to see your patient, your child today. We just want to be prepared with the proper PPE. But that was a little bit hard, too, as it felt like people didn't want to tell us if they had it or if they'd been exposed, maybe because they weren't quarantining or didn't want to. And so that was a little bit hard, trying to kind of felt like we were bearing the cross a little bit, trying to the only people with this message amidst the kind of really confusing messages from national and local leaders, basically. Wow. You know, and something else occurred to me is that I know firsthand from, because I have kids, how much I have a relationship with my pediatrician around things related to my kids' development and their, specifically their education, right? So like, I'm wondering, you know, with all the stuff going on with schools, what was your role as a pediatrician helping families sort of navigate the complexities of their kids' education during this time? Well, you're exactly right that it's been very complex and every family's been a little bit different. And so, you know, last year, all the schools were virtual. And so that was what it was. And you probably know more than me as a parent that it was a little bit clunky and have, you know, kind of thrown together last minute. The fall was a little bit different because schools had a little bit more time to prepare. But I forget exactly how we did it as a state. But I know that locally, Almost all the schools, I think, had the option of in-person school from August onward. And if it wasn't starting in August, it was only delayed by a few weeks, honestly, before they were allowed to go in-person. And so it was a lot of families asking us what we thought about it. And so it was a lot of just kind of case-by-case basis because the hard thing was, especially for these lower-income families, the virtual school just really wasn't always a good option for them. And I worried that You know, a lot of patients told me that the kids were not doing well. They were very behind. They weren't getting their therapies, you know, speech therapy or whatever special education needs they had. It wasn't the same virtual. So I had to have a lot of talks with families and just kind of what made the most sense for them, for the patient, for the family. You know, did we have to sort of take the risk and go back to school? Is it really trying to value education, too? I mean, health is important, and it would have felt terrible if I encouraged someone to go back and they got very sick from it. But I was trying to sort of remind families, and this is something I always do during checkups, is ask how school is going, because academic health is important, too. And I think a lot of communities or families need to be reminded of that sometimes. And so I heard a lot of in the beginning, and especially last spring, that school was closed or they weren't in school right now, as if like it was just canceled and we were all on break. And so it was a lot of kind of reminding them, you know, this is still really important. Yes, it's limited. It's not as good as it used to be, but it's still your school. I had a really kind of high risk kid who was already a couple of years behind just because he had a lot of medical problems. So of course he can't go in person. It would not be worth it for him. But the mom told me she was having a hard time waking him up for a virtual. And I said, you, you just can't, you can't have a hard time with that. You got to wake him up. He's got to do his school. Like you have to value that the way you do in-person school. So there's a lot of conversations with families, what was safe for them and what was best for the child too. And so a lot of kind of difficult decisions for families that really felt for them. I couldn't decide for them, but I just tried to kind of help them weigh the pros and cons of each. And fortunately, I will say by now, I think most of my patients, definitely most of mine, which is of course a small subset, 
but most of my patients are back to in-person school and it actually has been okay for the most part when we see kids get COVID they get it from their parents or from things they do outside of school if the school takes all the right precautions it doesn't let sick kids in we haven't seen a lot of spread within the schools from COVID. So that's been a big relief because we were all pediatricians who were really worried about that. What was going back to school going to look like? But then what was the risk of not going back to school? And that was really hard. I think it was hard for for parents to decide, hard for these schools to make these decisions because it just isn't an equal playing field when you go to virtual. For sure. So one thing I want to go back to is something you said when we spoke prior to this conversation, which is that, the impact that you've seen on little kids from this whole time has been more on academics, whereas the impact on bigger kids has been more on mental health. So I was thinking about that and I'm wondering as a pediatrician, what do you think about the long-term impact of COVID on kids adjustment? And what are you seeing in your practice? Yeah, that's one thing that we're all really kind of grappling with now and thinking a lot about as it as it feels like we're kind of moving past the worst of the pandemic that's sort of kind of weighing heavy on everyone's mind it's true for young kids it's a lot of you know they're going to be a year or more I feel like when you get behind in school it just really snowballs I think a lot of young kids are really behind a lot of kids who should have been in speech therapy or or have autism and should have been in in-person therapies, they're really, you know, not where they could have been. They're going to have a lot of catching up to do. A lot of the younger school-age kids are just academically so behind and trying to catch up. And then the older kids, the teenagers, just mental health are in terrible shape. And so, so much more depression, so much more anxiety. Several patients who have been hospitalized for severe depression even more than once since the pandemic began. It's really been hard. I think for teenagers, you just can't underestimate their need for social interaction and their need to connect that way. And so I had a fair amount of teenagers that have been new to the area and haven't been able to go to in-person school, so haven't been able to make friends, or even ones that have friends and just haven't been able to see them because their parents, rightfully so, have been trying to take the right precautions. And so I think that's going to last a long time for us to really see the ramifications of that and on the mental health of our teenagers and then just academically for younger kids as well. Mm-hmm. I apologize if this is an unfair question, but this just occurred to me. What advice would you give parents? (laughs) That is a, um, that's a good one. I think a lot of the conversations I've had with parents is trying to find the compromise because I've seen both versions of it. I've seen the parents who haven't let their kids out of the door in a year and those kids are not doing well. Mm -hmm. But then I've seen the opposite. This kid has already had COVID twice because maybe we haven't taken any precautions And so trying to figure out where the kid is sort of mentally, just mood wise, how they're coping, trying to find out where the parent is and just trying to find a middle ground, a safe space. And so a lot of times parents would tell me, you know, he wants to go back to school, but I just can't. I have diabetes. My mom has this, you know, so on and so forth. And and they're right. They have really high risk people in their home. And so it's okay, so school is not safe right now, but how can he safely see his friends? How can we make a safe way for him to connect with other kids his age? How can we make a safe space for him to meet? And so kind of reminding parents that that's important too. I think that parents as well have been under an extreme amount of stress trying to keep their kids safe. And I think in some ways, it's probably a little bit hard to hear that, you know, Johnny's mad that he can't go out tonight. It's probably hard to hear that when you're worried about Johnny staying alive, you know, and, and passing ninth grade and just trying to kind of be that sort of a 
middleman because I always talk to my teenagers alone and that's when they tell me all these things and then I go kind of talk to the parents and try to alert them if anything of concerns I have with mood or you know safety and so a lot of times it comes up you know I think it would really help and I you know make it seem like it was my idea I think it would it would really help Johnny if there was a safe way he could connect with his friends and just kind of reminding them that social interaction is really valuable for their mental health at that stage for teenagers and trying to help parents find a safe way to do that and it's just different for everyone. It's different for every situation, but almost just reminding them that that's actually a really important piece of their health. It's mental health and social interaction really plays into that, I think, a lot for teenagers. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really has been highlighted for me in our conversation today is just the breadth and the depth of your work and the influence that you as a pediatrician have on kids and families. I mean, it's just so significant and has an impact on just everything that happens in families' lives. And that just is such a, I don't want to say like a heavy burden, but it's just such a big and important job. So thank you so much for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. It, it is a lot. Sometimes it does feel like a burden that, that there's a lot that we want to cover, a lot that we need to address in short visits, but it's something that we take really seriously. And so we're happy to do that. We're here for the health of the family. And that's been hard in the pandemic. You know, I talked about safety and not wanting too many family members, but in some ways that's been a little bit limiting. You know, we like connecting with families. We like to be the person they ask. We want them to feel comfortable calling us in two weeks. Hey, do you think it's safe to go back to baseball? We want to answer that question. We don't want them to ask their neighbor. We want them to ask us yeah. and kind of get the advice from the right people. And so we do take our roles really seriously. And it's true that, you know, we've been fortunate that kids have not been as acutely ill from COVID. That's been a huge relief for all of us. I don't know, you know, how this year would have been if the kids were as sick as the adults. I mean, it would have been an even bigger nightmare than it has been. And so that being able to spend more time on these sort of other ramifications of the pandemic has been helpful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I notice is that in the entire conversation we've had so far, we've really been focusing on patients and what this experience has been like in terms of the experience of your patient population and the work you do. But I'm also really wondering about what the impact has been on you personally and professionally. You know, one thing you said earlier is that this has really been a test of your confidence. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to the other ways in which this past year has impacted you. Yeah, it's definitely been hard, especially going back to those beginning days where there was so much fear and uncertainty. And, you know, you mentioned personally, too. I mean, all of the staff and physicians included, we worried. We worried that we were going to catch COVID. We worried we were going to bring it home to our kids. You know, I have small kids and they go to daycare. And for a while, we had my mother-in-law come stay with us. They wouldn't have to go to daycare, but she couldn't do that forever. And as we saw, the pandemic raged on for seemingly forever. And so they went back to daycare and that gave me so much guilt that, you know, I was going into work and helping these families navigate these situations and, you know, dumping my kids at daycare every day. But, you know, fortunately, the daycare took precautions and it didn't end up being a high risk area for transmission so far, the daycare aged kids. But it has been hard. It's been hard, especially in the beginning, you know, trying to to balance that. I value my job. I know my job's important. I, I never would have thought to not to do my job, but that was hard trying to make sure that I wasn't going to bring it home to my family. So, you know, we used to all us physicians in the office would dress professionally, 
And then we just all, <laughs> we all changed into scrubs, got, you know, put our hair up, scrub caps on, changing in garages, like traipsing through, taking a shower the second you get home before your kids can call you. Because we really took that seriously. We didn't want to be the ones who made our own family sick. I mean, imagine how that would feel. So that was definitely hard. Professionally, like I said, just kind of trying to tackle a new challenge every day has been hard. It feels like once we get something figured out, it changes a little bit. Although it's kind of nice looking back in retrospect because where we are now compared to where we were last year is so much different. It's so much different. Now we do know how it spreads. Now we do know, you know, almost every situation we hear about now, so-and-so had it, how long do I quarantine? We can answer it like nothing. Whereas in the beginning, we were like getting out calendars and counting days and when do we test and when do we quarantine? We're all so much more familiar with that now. And so that's been better. But it was hard in the beginning, you know, worrying about bringing it home to the kids, worrying about are we doing this right? Are we doing the right things? Are we testing the right kids? Are we testing enough kids? Are we having the right conversations? That was really hard. And so I think that the first for sure, six months of it were definitely exhausting. I didn't sleep well. I didn't really take very good care of myself. I started drinking a ton of coffee and have not stopped doing that. <laughs> and my goal for this year is to, to wean back off that a little bit. <laughs> but for me, the biggest thing has been, well, a couple of things. I, you know, try to sort of create some boundaries for myself. So I found that trying to help my patients all day with COVID and then thinking about my kids getting COVID all night was enough. I couldn't handle the news. I couldn't listen to the news briefings anymore in the spring. Mm -hmm. I couldn't look at those models. For a long time, I would finally go to bed and just stare at the models of kind of where this was going and text my other physician friends. Did you see this model? And do you think that's true? And so I had to kind of create some boundaries. I had to stop watching the news. I had to just sort of focus on my patients and my family and kind of I couldn't do the I mean every now and then I would keep up but I couldn't do the daily bad news reports mm-hmm. and then the other place where I put boundaries is you know a lot of times I would get questions from family or friends that sort of good questions you know do you think it's safe to do this or daycare teacher has this or saying this and that got to be really hard and so I had to sometimes be like I'm really sorry but I can't help you with that right now because I just only have so many brain cells and I just had to sort of put a limit to it I had to turn my brain off and so we got a Peloton I would be working out at night and I would actually put my phone away and that was one of those times where I said and I think it was my mom of all people was like I'm really sorry but I just can't answer this right now. And of course you understood, but I just needed those like 30, 40 minutes mm-hmm. to not think about it, to not be figuring it out for someone. And so I think that was important, kind of creating some boundaries and knowing my limits that I just couldn't be 24 seven trying to crack COVID. Exactly. Well, and as a psychologist and somebody who cares about health behaviors, I think certainly coming up with an exercise regimen is a great idea. And establishing boundaries is also really, really integral and I'm sure has been key for you. And it sounds a lot like what we, how we supported folks in my healthcare system here, which is that we really thought about things in three key ways that number one, we knew we needed to help people learn how to help themselves and practice the skills of decompression, which we would define as like disconnecting from your work and giving your body and your mind and your nervous system an opportunity to fully recover before you're sort of back in the fray. And then we we also helped people think about teamwork and like cultivating 
the natural supports in the teams they already work in, because I think it's just so important to share experiences with people who understand what you're going through. And so I would imagine that you as a physician found a lot of support in your physician colleagues because of just the sort of the universality of your experience, right? And then the last play is um, leadership. We really worked with arming our leaders with the skills and the tools that we thought they needed in order to really assess and respond to distress among our frontline staff. Yeah, I think having colleagues going through the same things has been just invaluable. And I, you know, two people in particular, pediatricians who also have kids who also live around here. I mean, they were the people that every single day, you know, we kind of went through it together and figured it out together. And that was so valuable to me because they could relate to them in ways that really nobody else could relate to me. Mm-hmm. And then from a mom point of view, other moms that had kids in daycare, that was really valuable too. You know, how is your daycare doing this? And is your daycare doing that? And so finding people that are going through the same thing, I think is, is definitely helpful. And that definitely helps a lot to keep us healthy and sane going through it all. You know, one thing I that we didn't touch on yet that I'm also interested to hear your opinion on is about mental health resources, like professional mental health resources. And I'm thinking about it both from the perspective of like your needs as a healthcare professional and also for your patients' needs. So wondering what you what you think about that. Yeah, so I think that I have not personally accessed it, but our organization has been really good about we have a sort of parallel peer, I think it's called counseling programs. And so they've been really good about making these resources available for us, which I think has been really great that they prioritize that. It's a kind of a different story though for my patients. And I'm trying to, I don't want to pull up this quote because I want to make sure I get it right. So even before COVID, there already is sort of known that there's just not enough child mental health providers. Mm-hmm. And especially in our area, there doesn't seem like a high priority down here. And so that was before the pandemic and that was before so many kids had like really deteriorated because of it. And so I think it was Dr. Peter Jensen said that if you paired all child and adolescent psychiatrists with all the children pre-COVID that needed to see them, each child would get 30 minutes of care once a year. Wow. Which is staggering, which is staggering. And so that's been really hard. And so now we're identifying a lot of mental health problems in our teenagers and and our younger patients. And so where are we sending them? Where can we send them? And that's something that we're constantly as physicians trying to figure out and even as an organization trying to bridge the gap and find more mental health providers. And I don't know the answer, but I think it's only going to get worse in the years to come as we really see the ramifications from us all. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it it just adds to your growing list of things that you as a pediatrician have to be well-versed in and almost like responsible for, because if all your patients only get 30 minutes a year, then a lot of the responsibility, I think, falls to you to be that, I guess, the bridge or the, the educator, the support person, and the person who triages to care when needed. Exactly. We had this conversation recently with one of our meetings with our clinic and part of the organization sort of going forward, what do we need more support in? And that was the number one thing. We were like, we we need more support in this area. And it's not that we don't want to give it, but we don't have the time. Like we could train ourselves better on how to treat anxiety, depression, but they're not quick visits. And so when we have a 15 minute 
16-year-old checkup and she happens to be depressed, there's not nearly enough time to address it. And so we're really trying to figure out how to meet that need because it is true. There's not enough psychiatrists for them to go to now and there might not be in the future either. It's not going to be a quick fix training up more psychiatrists. And so trying to understand how we can fill that gap a little bit better, but it's going to have to come down to our schedules being a little bit different. And then at the end of the day, a lot of that comes back to reimbursement. So if we spend 30 or 45 minutes with a teenager giving them what they need, how is the insurance going to pay us for that? Is it going to pay it like it was a 15-minute visit? Is that model going to be sustainable? So it's really, really high-level questions and next steps, and and that's definitely heavy on our minds as pediatricians, but I think on the organization as well, because we all kind of see it coming. It's like a storm coming, slow brewing, and how are we going to handle it? Yeah, well, and it's probably beyond the scope of our conversation today to like figure out how to fix the healthcare system. But I'm I'm so glad you're doing the work and participating in these conversations, and because it really is the voice of the healthcare professional and the frontline folks that are actually on the ground doing the work that really matters. And I think it's important that we have we give you platforms to amplify what you're seeing and what you've you've experienced and not only your subject matter expertise, but your personal experiences and your patient stories. Now, this is another unfair question, but what do you think about lessons learned? Like, do you have any, any sort of like parting pieces of wisdom that would really be important for either a healthcare organization to know about or for other healthcare workers to know about? I think that for an organization, I think you touched on it, but I'll just repeat it, is that we really need, you know, your healthcare workers, your providers, your staff, we really need to feel like we're valued and our safety is a priority of yours. We understand that the patients are a priority, but we need to feel like we are too, especially if we are putting ourselves on various levels, the different degrees of frontline interaction. But if we're putting ourselves on the front line we need to feel like that we're valued by the organization for doing that and that our safety is appropriately addressed. And then for healthcare workers, I don't know if I have much advice going forward. I think one of the amazing things about this pandemic, and there's, you know, I haven't been a lot of positives, but what one really positive thing is just the information sharing has been incredible. I mean, from the beginning, and I hate to like tout Facebook of all places, but I, I should probably just say social networking among physicians, I mean, around the country, around the world has really been incredible. I mean, I, like overnight joined this group of like 80,000 or something physicians and advanced practice providers who are pediatricians specifically relating to COVID. And I learned so much from that and not so much the medicine of it, but even just logistics. Hey, how's everyone handling the sick checkup? How's everyone handling telehealth for this how's everyone handling that you know testing back to school writing school notes that's been invaluable and so networking i think more than ever before people say that it was 10 years of science crammed into one because there was just so much good information sharing and so many people with the same thing on their minds or the same crisis at hand i think that's been the one really positive and so i think that was has been really valuable is kind of learning from each other, sharing that information, being willing to sort of ask for help or seek help or understand how other places are doing things has definitely been really valuable. And, and a lot of people in this networking group have said, you know, can we keep this on after COVID? Because it's actually just really nice to network with people and get ideas from other people that you wouldn't thought of and learn from each other. 
That's an incredible silver lining. I love that. And it, it actually sort of supports what we were saying earlier about the importance of supporting each other. It just sort of speaks to the, again, like this sort of universal experience that we're all having and the importance of recognizing that we're not in it alone and that we can ask for help and that that help can take a variety of forms, right? Exactly. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank you. It was nice to talk about it. I feel a little decompressed now, actually. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic with Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512